0: Hello, and welcome to Economics for Rebels, the podcast of the European Society for Ecological Economics. Up until recently, it was an act of rebellion to pursue economics as if nature mattered and the earth was finite. This rebellion must bring a major shift to economic thinking. Our podcast is dedicated to exploring the economics of just and sustainable transformations in conversations with scientists, experts, activists, pushing for rapid and radical change for people and planet. Welcome to our podcast. I am today's host, Alexander Kavesh, and you are listening to the Economics for Rebels podcast. Talking about ecological economics often invokes the mentioning of limits. Ecological and social limits to growth are often brought up in the context where we need to respect these external boundaries and restrain ourselves accordingly. Today's guest, Yorgos Kalis, in his book, Limits, puts forward an unusual but compelling argument that instead of seeing a world where human wants are unlimited and the environment limits them, we should start seeing a world where human desires are limited and the ecological environment is abandoned. Well, his line of thought is unorthodox in so many ways. Understanding it should be essential to all those who are concerned about our growth frenetic world. Yorgos is an ecological economist and political ecologist. He's professor at the Institute of Environmental Science and Technology at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. His work focuses on the hypothesis of degrowth and how we can move to a society that prospers without growth. He's the coordinator of the European Network of Political Ecology and author of many books and papers on degrowth, one of which is Limits, published by Stanford University Press in 2019, the topic of our conversation today. Welcome, Jorgos.
1: Hi, Alexandra. Good to talk to you.
0: I must tell you that reading your book was kind of a, a humbling experience because it happens very rarely that you think you understand something and then once you read a book, you, you think now you understand why you hadn't understood something. So that was the kind of feeling I had after reading your book. I have heard so many ecological economists talk about hard ecological limits Mm
1: -hmm. that we are
0: not supposed to transgress. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit that I I had been one of them before reading your book. So Mm -hmm. um, are we all wrong or were we all wrong?
1: Yeah, I have been also one of them. And I still am, because sometimes when you write some things, it's easier to, to keep following the standard narrative, no? which is that there are limits, we shouldn't transgress them, therefore we should move to a post-growth or degrowth direction. I'm, I'm not saying that we've been wrong, obviously not, no. but I'm trying to, to reframe and to think a little bit more carefully of what is it that we are saying there. And I have to say that I'm not, uh, I'm not alone there. I mean, in ecological economics... My mentor, the person who inspired me and got me to be an ecological economist, was Richard Norgard. And he was always writing in this direction. I mean, he was writing about coevolution. And I remember when I first read it, he, in the footnotes to the book, he had like a long-thought reflection on Georgescu Rogan, the idea of entropy, thinking of it as an absolute limit or not, whether it makes sense or not. So in Ecological, and, and I started the book, my book by quoting a phrase from uh, Norgard who says like instead of thinking of limits as something out there, it would be much more constructive if we use this metaphor, this word of limits, to think of how we can limit our impact on the environment and our impact and our relationship on one another. And Norgard had started these ideas, but I pushed them a little bit more in the book. I pushed them, let's say, to their... I followed them to to the letter to see where they lead me. And I have to say, the conclusion is not that there are no planetary boundaries in the sense that there aren't thresholds or there isn't climate change. That would be a crazy conclusion, right? And to say that it's all about us not emitting carbon. You would tell me if there isn't climate change, why would you not <laughs> emit carbon or use fossil fuels to be happier? No. That's not the argument. But the argument is that, that there is no reason to to frame climate change, biodiversity loss, all these problems as some external limit or hard rock that we are crashing against and that we should not crash or that we should overcome. And, and I have two reasons why this should not be the way. First, because I argue that for capitalism, this particular framing of nature as a limit that limits our desires and our possibilities has been central for mobilizing economic growth. So it could be that for us ecologists thinking that there is a limit is a reason to be humble. But for the majority and for the dominant logic in capitalism, identifying a limit is precisely the way it galvanizes the forces to get into war with this limit, to, to colonize it, to overcome it, to demolish it, whatever, you know, to fly to the moon, to fly and colonize the Mars, whatever you say is the limit. It's always the, the counter reaction of capitalism is to overcome it. That's one reason. The other is that I also think that by putting the limit outside of us, much like the religion does, which puts a limit as uh, not within us, but within an outside God that asks to us to limit ourselves or gives us the Ten Commandments, we take away a big deal of our responsibility, which is our responsibility to limit ourselves and find our desires. So for these two reasons, I say, let's think of environmental disasters and catastrophes that we are unleashing in a different way, which is not that there is some external limit that we are transcending, but that we are destroying a beautiful planet that we have inherited. Think of it more in terms of pollution, let's say, than resource scarcity, No, that we have like a bountiful planet with a stable climate that could support us for centuries and we are destroying this right now, you don't have to think of it as a limit in terms of the climate or a carbon budget and all these economistic ways of thinking around it.
0: You're also inviting us to rethink the way we, we think of, of Malthus and his thoughts. And when people hear of Malthus, they immediately think, think of someone who suggested limiting human population growth in order to, to fit into these resource limits. In your book, you, you kind of argue that we completely misunderstand him, and this misunderstanding is, is crucial in, in order to move forward with our argumentation on why and, and how we should live in harmony, both with ourselves and, and, and our environment. Can you tell us why you suggest that, that Malthus discovered unlimited wants rather than mm-hmm. natural limits?
1: Yeah, I don't think we misunderstand him. I think we we don't read him. I don't think most people that invoke Malthus have read uh, the essay or have read the... I don't say to read the whole work of Malthus because I didn't read it, but at least read the biography to understand the person and what he was writing. I mean, Malthus inspired Keynes for public spending. I'm just saying that to throw off the idea that Malthus was someone who was thinking only in terms of scarcity and of, you know, like... His whole political economy had nothing to do with this thing. He had one essay on population, which is supposed to be the Malthus that we come to think about, but that we we need to, to acknowledge that he was invoked in a very particular setting in the 1960s by so-called neo-Malthusians, that they were ecologists like Paul elrich uh, Garrett Hardin, William Rees more recently, that they've made important contributions. I I'm Gareth Hardin, no, Gareth Harding was, was an idiot, but Paul Hillary and, <laughs> and, uh, and William Reiser are people who, let's say, in terms of their ecological work and in terms of thinking of human ecology, they've made important, they've brought important insights into the debates. And they're called Neo-Malthusians because they invoke the idea of hard limits and they also put a lot of emphasis on the question of population, which we can discuss, I think there are problems in their arguments. But the the main thing I'm challenging with is that this is also what Malthus himself was saying. And not to say that whatever Malthus was saying was right, but I think in trying to understand how Malthus framed the issue, we'll see where we are trapped. And let me say that I'm not alone in that, in saying that the neo-Malthusians of the 60s and the 70s, let's say, was uh, not that Malthus would not be an Malthusian, to put it in this way. That's not my idea. That's what also what the biographers of Malthus, who have studied uh, him seriously, like Mayhew, who has written a big book, he's a historian of thought, and he has argued the same thing, Like that Malthus and the Malthusians are like uh, worlds apart. So let's see what Malthus had argued. First of all, Malthus didn't say anything about resource limits. He, was a, he, he didn't believe there were limits to resources. And I have several quotes on that where he says there isn't limit to how much we can increase food. There isn't limit to how much uh, resources we can take of, out of earth. We can increase this in any way with capacity we imagine that we can do. So he wasn't someone he, who thought there were limits to growth. Growth was not a concept at his time. Also, let's think about that. Economic growth was not the desired thing at his time. At his time, the desired thing was population growth. The desired thing, I insist on that. And Malthus was all for that. So he was an advocate of population growth. He was a student of Paley, a, theolo- a theologist who, theologian who was at Cambridge, who was also talking about population growth. And Malthus in the book has several uh, statements that I quote also in my book where he says that the greatest good a nation can aspire to is a nation that is populous, that can feed its people and that it's growing. It was military power. It was also responding to the so perceived demand of God to populate the earth. So it was also a religious imperative to increase the population. And Malthus is not questioning any of that. Any of that. He's not saying that increasing the population might have a negative effects or anything. He's considering how you can increase the population in a way but it's consistent and stable. And in that context, he's against the ideas of the French Revolution that it's coming at the time, and this was why he wrote His on Population, where the French Revolution said, by redistributing, by having like a go away with kings and classes, everyone can live better off, and then we can have... So he's challenging this argument, and he's saying, no, it's by not redistributing and by keeping the poor people poor that you're going to have a healthy rate of population growth because the poor people will have an incentive to work in order to, to survive, no? instead of you supporting them. And by working more, they're going to produce more, and this way you can support more people. So his model, in modern terms, because he wasn't talking about economic growth, but in modern terms, we can see his model was one of giving incentives to the people to work so that they produce more, and this leads to population growth, and this way you have a healthy nation. Now, why I say he invented the uh, unlimited desires? unlimited ones because precisely the whole model of malthus rests on a very weird assumption that we also t- <clears throat> almost take it for granted i was listening to william reese the other day on a podcast uh, or you can think of paul ellrich in the same way which is to think that there is something natural that if you leave humans alone they're just gonna increase their numbers in a geometric way so we're gonna have uh, four kids that they're gonna have four kids each you know and it's gonna be a geometric rate of growth but that's, that's an assumption, I would say. It's a premise uh, because we know from human history that humans have consciously uh, limited their numbers given their capacities and given their, uh, the possibilities. You know? like uh, Birth control has always been part of humanity. It was also at the time of Malthus, and he seems to recognize it, but he just thinks that poor people cannot do it. And birth control always adjusts to the type of survivability the human race has. So if you know that out of your four kids, two are going to survive, you have four kids. More or less, humans were all the time trying to be around two, three kids maximum. They weren't having this assumption that they're going to like breed like uh, an uncontrolled uh, species. And that's the basis assumption where Malthus model rests upon, that humans have this unlimited propensity that this propensity is inscribed on us by god so it's god wants us to populate as much as possible it's not possible to populate at this geometric rate but at least we can push the for the forces of production as much as possible to accommodate as much as possible of this population growth i'm saying like invert this logic and see that humans have always limited their numbers they have limited since then and it's always on it's only on under particular social situations and conditions including in Malthus times that societies get destabilized and then demographics and population rates get destabilized in Malthus time it was a very specific thing it was the enclosures poor people were taken out of their lands they were flocked into next to paris to survive and they kept having the same number of people as before without being any more linked to agriculture and it's this thing that Malthus instead of because he was a conservative instead of seeing the real social cause of this problem which someone like Marx later on so uh, he was arguing that it was just poor people breeding at their natural rate and that this natural rate uh, was uh, was overshooting the capacities of production, and then we needed to bring production and population uh, back in line.
0: You've been talking about limits, and you also mentioned scarcity at, at some point. And I, I, th- I think it's it's really important for us to understand the difference between limits and, and scarcity and its opposites, like limitlessness or abundance. So oh uh, can you help us you know, see how um, how how they relate to each other. Scarcity is always a
1: function of uh, wants and possibilities, right? So, if to say that something is scarce means that you want more than what you can have. And what I'm arguing in the book is that for for economists, scarcity is like a how can you say an ontological premise. It's not something that they are proving empirically that there is scarcity here and there. I mean, everything is scarce, and why is everything Potentially, everything is scarce all of the time. And why? Because our wants are assumed to be unlimited. And I'm saying that with Malthus, you can see that very clearly on his assumption about population growth being potentially a geometric rate, you know, moving to infinity quickly, potentially. He says this never happens because we can never mobilize all the resources to have uh, geometric population growth, but we can mobilize resources to to accommodate as much as possible of this potential of humanity uh, to expand towards infinity. And wh- where the, where is this potential of humanity coming from? It's by refusing to see any of our capacities to limit ourselves. You know, to say like, okay, we're gonna have birth control, we're gonna plan our families, etc. So assuming all this away and saying that our nature which is a huge assumption. Our nature is this infinite want of having as much kids as possible. I mean, sex, which is a natural instinct, but sex without any birth control or control of procreation. So you're going to have as as many kids as, as nature allows you. So with this assumption, the world becomes scarce by definition. And it is important here to see that for Malthus, the world was not scarce sometime in the future, that there would be a population bomb that will explode as it was for early for example for example but he says it's scarce uh, always because always like the population has this propensity to to explode and resources cannot keep up at that track so there is an eternal scarcity on the basis of which he calls for what today we might call growth for growing food population for gro- growing food production to accommodate the population etc and that model is uh, the basic building a rock of economics to our date. It's not population anymore, but you can think now of consumption or in more abstract terms, utility, no? But the, the assumption is that we cannot limit uh, our desires, we cannot limit our consumption. We basically want everything that we could have. We want singularity, we want to fly to, to other planets. So there's no limit in what we want. So of course, if that's the case, then there is always scarcity because whatever we have in any given moment is not enough. For this infinity of potential desires we have. So that's the idea of scarcity and in that sense everything is limited but it also doesn't matter because <laughs> everything is limited because there is scarcity all the time but we're just pushing this scarcity outwards. And that's why I say Malthus model was very problematic because from the very beginning it installed this idea that there isn't enough for everyone, everything is limited all the time but we can produce more and more and push it outwards, push outwards these limits. It's a basic logic of capitalism. Uh, and then the planet or everything in that sense seems stingy and scarce and not enough no? because we have all these desires that cannot be fulfilled by the planet or by anything or by the universe you might argue. I'm saying inverse this logic because that's a capitalist logic and an occidental logic and see how for example indigenous people or others ancient civilizations had been thinking about the same issues, and you find actually a very paradoxical for our, for ourselves, for our occidental capitalists, paradoxical way of seeing things, which is uh, they thought the planet was uh, super abundant, and then they were limiting themselves, which you would say why? Why would they do that? No, and precisely because they didn't want. They, they understood that the point is not to have like infinite uh, desires. I'm oversimplifying here. No, these were not conscious processes, but they are processes that you can observe in different historical times and civilizations. So you see, for example, hunter-gatherers in the Congo Basin, that I took that from the ethnography of my friend Jerome Lewis, and they think the forest is abandoned, you know, but then they have like all these institutions, hunter-gatherers had uh, all these institutions, that they were controlling how much of the forest they are using, how much power each person in the community accumulates. So they, th- they said, like, okay, if you trust the environment and your forest, it will give to you. Uh, it's a gift relationship. Like, you trust it, it gives to you, you give back to it. You don't want too much out of it, and it's going to keep giving to you. And you have to limit, to use our terms now, no? you have to limit what you want, uh, how much power persons in your community accumulate, how much power the community accumulates, you have to limit that in order to have the environment keep giving to you. And I think that's a much better basis for limiting ourselves rather than the, contra- the contrary one of scarcity, which is the, base- the basic rationale of economics and of capitalist
0: civilization. So you're suggesting that um, to see these self-enforced limits is to see it as part of a a meaningful life. You have a completely different understanding of what human beings are or how human beings can live. And I quote from your book, you, you argue limits are something to be sought as part of the good life. And for for most in our our current societies it is really difficult to understand how these self-enforced limits can can add meaning to to our lives moreover when such a topic comes up and also you've been talking about hunter gatherers so a lot of people react to that like okay but we don't want to go back to the caves we don't mm-hmm. you know we we don't we automatically think of simple life activists and 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 many of us wouldn't want to copycat their lives so mm-hmm. um how do you think self-restraint relates to finding meanings in our lives in our contemporary world
1: yeah i mean in the contemporary world, there is a science and a mass <laughs> uh how can I call it? Medical practice called psychoanalysis that more or less tries to do the same with people from all walks of life, not to send them back to the caves uh, or turn them into hippies, but basically teach people that um, to find meaning and some, not, not meaning, I mean, find some psychological balance and not get, let's say, crazy in your everyday life. You need to identify your desires, and what are your true desires and pursue your true desires and learn to limit, to use my word here, not of psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis doesn't talk about limit necessarily, but like to control desires that are not your true desires and that they are self-destructive for you and destructive for others. So I'm not saying something extraordinary here. I mean, it's, it's basic wisdom. The classical Greeks 3,000 years ago, we we're talking about the same things. Humanity knows it all along the way. Christianity was more or less a preaching along the same ways also. I mean, if someone doesn't like hunter-gatherers, maybe he likes Christ, no? Jesus Christ, <laughs> if, they, if they're Christians, or Buddha, if they're Buddhists. So all, all these teachings, spiritual teachings, and in a modern form of, let's say, non-religious teachings in terms of psychoanalysis, which you can say it's like the substitute for those who cannot find meaning through religion anymore. Um, they are there, so it's not. I'm not discovering them as an ecologist reading Malus now. So the idea that to 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 have a balanced life, you have to to, for example, not not be overwhelmed by comparisons with others who have more than you, with your classmates, with your colleagues, and wanting more than them, and that. This, I mean, you, you you can become someone Trump and very powerful in this way. That's true, but you'll be also as miserable as Trump is. So that someone can see that there is a misery in this life, no? And there is also a kind of, let's say, pathology. Uh, not me- if not medical, definitely social pathology, no? So in that sense, yes. What what, what I'm saying is fits with. Everything we know about what would meaning a good life would be like from science to religion to spiritual teachings of a true sort, you know, not the modern evangelical capitalist kind of confluence. But like, I think, I, I think that this is a common human wisdom that many people have. And if you put it in these terms, they will understand it. If you put it in terms of you have to limit your carbon footprint, okay, then they say, what are you talking about?
0: In my um, in my own research, normally participatory research, no matter what topic we're uh, we're talking about, um, I often find that that what people long for the most in in their lives is is autonomy, and and this is regardless of, of their backgrounds or or beliefs, and. In the book, you are suggesting that this is exactly this kind of autonomy that we must provide for people to, to voluntarily limit their wants or, or be able to pursue this kind of meaning. Mm-hmm. And um, can you tell us how, how autonomy and, and um, self-limitation interrelate to each other?
1: Yeah, they are are basically the same thing. It's not that they interrelate, because if we take strictly the meaning of the term autonomy, that it's a a Greek uh, origin word, is auto, self, and nomos, which is, nomos is uh, rules, laws, Uh, so basically limits, no? So it's the same word, uh, (laughs) uh, but in ancient Greek (laughs) uh, terminology. So autonomy and self-limitation is the same thing. But here is like where our peculiar notions of freedom and limits talk, no? Because in modern capitalist civilization, we think of limits as the opposite of freedom. So, And also you would think autonomy is like, okay, I can do whatever I want without having anyone telling me what to do in a bad sense of autonomy no? or in a limited sense of autonomy. But I think if we take literally what autonomy means, not literally, but also theoretically, it means the freedom for you to to find and set your own limits. So it is you, yourself and not someone else externally that is putting you limits. So it's not that it doesn't put you anything and you can do whatever you want. So in that sense, uh, autonomy, which is also an act of uh, freedom and responsibility at the same time, is what I call also collective self-limitation, which is coming together and finding what is it that we want to pursue and that we can pursue without destroying our our collectives uh, and what is it that we have to to pull back and and, and not pursue setting our own uh, laws and rules
0: when i say i find uh, most people longing for autonomy that's that's because it seems that nowadays they're, they're lacking this feeling of, of autonomy. And probably that's, uh, that's partly due to the political system that they experience. So uh, we would probably need a radically different political system um, for, for true autonomy. What could that look like, you think? Yeah, it's a political
1: system, but it's also the economic system. Because if you think what people mean also means like, I don't have a. Power or freedom to choose how to live and I'm forced by all these external conditions to live a particular life that I understand that might be problematic or I understand that some of my desires are not the desires that make me happy but I am forced externally to go in this direction and I can't do otherwise like think in a setup let's say of a north american setup now i have to spend like all my li- most of my life two hours three hours per day in a car commuting to my job you know this is out of my capacity in a sense it's not that i could just grow tomatoes in my backyard and live happier and it's not that there are jobs close to where i'm living because with my income that's the rent i can afford or the property that i can afford and this is one and a half hours away from where i live and Oil is still cheap, and I have a... You know what I mean? So you're, you, are, you, are, you are in a setup, which you can call it political, but it's also economic, it's political-economic. But you cannot exercise uh, any freedom over these conditions. So that's one thing to say. That. Now, how do you recover the control of these conditions? You recover it politically, by coming together and being able to save these uh, greater forces that now seem to us to be coming heteronomously defining us, not coming from the outside and leaving us very little uh, opportunity to to interact. I don't don't want to predicate on what political system, but definitely a political system that would uh, include much more uh, direct and citizens' democracy, localized democracy, and opportunities to decide things together directly with forms of state power controlled forms of state power, that they can control things, which is not the case right now, because the state right now, it's not, it's not really controlling things. I mean, it is doing the job that the economy needs it to do in order to, to function, which is, is, is a very different idea than a, a polity or a state that puts the needs of the citizens first, and it's responsive and controllable by these citizens.
0: Where do you think this shift of in our understanding of of limits could start what could initiate this kind of rethinking of limits
1: yeah I mean we have to talk about it first of all to start seeing it this way start making these links between the personal and the uh, ecological this is another reason why I think the way we have been arguing about limits is problematic because again unless we make these links then it sounds like an external limitation that it's we have to to bend to you know like to take it even if we don't like it and then adjust our lives to something that it's not desirable but it's because the environment or the planet is demanding this from us so it sounds like a as i was saying a stingy mother that it's like strict with us and i don't think this is this is this is a starting point, and it is unfortunately one that we environmentalists have pushed over and over, and that's why we have been caricatured also in popular culture as the party poopers, you know, the ones who, who, who spoil the party, who tell us we can't have this, who wants us to... And, and there is a reason, because you are trying to invoke like a, a superior power that uh, calls us for us to be good kids and docile. So that's not the starting point. I think the starting point would be to start connecting what is happening at the planetary scale or at the environmental field with what is happening on the personal and the community level, which is the sense of loss of power, loss of meaning at the personal level, fronting lifestyles. This is what the growth at its best as a theory has been doing. And this is, of course, thanks the fact that it's not (laughs) anglo-saxon sorry to say to english-speaking friends now because anglo-saxons are either they're coming with this strict notion of limits or they're like hardcore marxists or socialists you know they don't they don't have all this i think openness that uh, continentals europeans uh, also people from other parts of the world have in terms of thinking about Meaning in terms of autonomy, in terms of conviviality, in terms of personal relations, and, and all this other, might say, non materialist, non hard stuff that I think are crucial if you want to think exits uh, from the current uh, disastrous path we are in.
0: And probably the question that most ecological economists are listening to you now question now is is that they they probably asked should we now abandon advocating hard ecological limits should we now forget about measures like the ecological footprint is that what you're suggesting or
1: yeah i mean if i follow strictly what you said advocating hard ecological limits yes i would say yes uh, we should abandon that and we should advocate hard social, social limits uh, but this doesn't mean stop we're not advocating. I mean, we are, as natural scientists, that we are also, or our community is, we are also pointing uh, to real ecological and biophysical and geo-ecological processes. And we shouldn't be stop pointing to this, that there is a, a reality that if the planet hits two degrees, this is going to mean A, B, C, you know? And if it hits three, it's going to mean X and four. that This is clear, but that... that We're not advocating that, no? We don't want that to happen. So we want this to stop, not because there is a limit, because things are going to happen also after these temperatures, terrible things are going to happen. What we are advocating is that we should stop moving in this direction. And it's not only this direction. It's also the direction of the industrial agriculture that is linked to the increasing frequency of pandemics. It is the craziness now with artificial intelligence that people think this this will get us before we arrive to climate change. It's also the, the arms races and the continuous uh, vying for geopolitical power that it's leading us to nuclear disasters. So there are at least three or four pathways to hell that they are being unleashed right now. And it is this that we should stop rather than think that there is some limit there that it's going to stop us on its own. That's one thing. The ecological footprint is, I think it's a little bit different uh, discussion because I think it's it's not a good indicator on its own. And I mean, my colleagues, Mario Gianpetro, Jerome Van den Berg, here have written very good pieces on explaining that. But I mean, it, it is bad not because of the limit dimension of it, but it's bad because of the land equivalence dimension. So it's really problematic to turn everything into land equivalence. So, in that sense, I'm not in a uh, but that's a technical thing. You know? I, I don't believe in the ecological footprint as a good indicator, but I do believe in the notion of footprint as being important in terms of showing, not of land footprint, no? but on footprint in general, material footprint, canber footprint, of showing that it's not just about what we produce within the borders of our country or what we do as individuals in our house, how much electricity we use, but the whole footprint of where our materials are coming from and what is happening in the whole chain in terms of carbon but also in terms of social impacts and in terms of ecological impacts. and i think this is really important when we tend to think about limits because very often what happens within capitalist uh, economies and this is something that my colleague giacomo d'alisa is working with is the link between limits and cost shifting, which is an important concept in ecological economics. So we overcome temporarily or spatially limits in our part uh, by shifting the costs either to the future or to other parts of the world. In that sense, footprint is good because it lets you see uh, internalize the whole spatial dimension of what's going on. So you might be feeling that, oh, here we're just sitting in our offices, we are light-footing the earth. But then it's like, okay, where is all your material coming from? Where are you shifting this cost for you to have a a light lifestyle? Uh, In that sense, I like footprint, but not ecological footprint that tries also then to, to reduce all values, ecological values into a single value of land. I mean, as ecological economists, we have criticized such reductionisms since ever.
0: And last, I would like to ask you the question we ask all our guests. What is your rebellion?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, <laughs> I think it's, a, it's the hardest one. And I, I, I'm, I'm sad to say that I'm not, I haven't rebelled against anything in my life. So you gave me a good, <laughs> a good thing to analyze, psychoanalyze myself and see what's going wrong there. But no, I'm not a rebel. I've, I've been quite obedient all my life. It might sound uh, strange because you say, oh, you talk about the growth. That sounds like very rebellious. But for me, it's not the rebellious. You know, it's like, it's it's common sense. It's uh, my reasonable scientific sense. And it's also in a way a good, what I think is good for humanity, you know? So, yeah, I don't see it as an act of rebellion. I have to rebel about something. Uh, and... Uh, our talk will make me think more about it, what's going to be my rebellion.
0: Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, and thanks to all of you for spending time with us. Stay tuned with us for our next episode. Thank Bye, you, you.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast series of the European Society for Ecological Economics. If you like the conversation and your work is related to ecological economics in any discipline, consider becoming a member of our society to stay connected. If you are ready to discuss the topic, join our Facebook group called European Society for Ecological Economics.